The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We rejoice, Father, that we have experienced that love expressed in the blood of the cross, expressed in the victory, your victory over death. Oh, thank you for the kind of love that the Father has shown to us. Hallelujah, Christ is King, forever reigning on the throne. Thank you for placing us here where we can worship freely, where we can proclaim you freely, where we can pray and love each other, share the faith with those around us. Thank you for your church. Thank you, Father, for faithful preachers around the world. Thank you for our missionaries. Thank you for church members who will serve as missionaries around this city tomorrow when they go to work or go to school or wherever we go. Empower us by your Spirit today as we worship and study and pray you open our ears and our spiritual eyes and our hearts to your truth for your people today. For we live in a dark place. It's a dark world. And Lord, we pray that uh, you might cause us to be a bright lighthouse in this community serving you. We pray for our leaders, not just the leaders of our church. Give us uh, wisdom and uh, our leadership. Pray for the leaders of the nations, particularly our nation, president, his family, our vice president, his family. We pray for our governor, his family. We pray for our mayor and his family, our fire chief and police chief, all those, Lord, that you have placed above us. We, uh, we pray for them. We pray that you would do a work in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would bless their service of leadership. You are a great God. We trust that you can do even those things and so much more. Pray for our membership, Lord, that uh, aren't here today. Some are traveling. Some are sick. Some in the hospital. And we just pray for your mercy and grace in their lives. We realize that many of those homebound people are uh, might have wanted to be here more this morning than we wanted to be here. And so touch them today. Help them to know your presence. Bless their lives and use us to minister to them as well. Bless the preaching of your word. Our pastor, Lord, has prepared. We pray that you would speak through him. You'd make us aware of what is going on in this world and that truth would be that which we hunger and desire to proclaim more than anything. We wait to see you and to hear you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you would, turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. This morning we finish up the second part of what we began last week, looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 22. Peter writes these words. Let me just read it in full to you, and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. 
picking up in, in verse 10, the second half, Peter is talking about false teachers, false prophets who are infiltrating the church in his day. And this is what he says about them. He says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pr- pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs. They're mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. For if they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's the word of the Lord. As you can see, we've got a very happy and joyful text before us this morning that should encourage and enlighten everyone. Um, Sarcasm in the max there. Um, We're dealing with a chapter in 2 Peter that is miserable to walk through. Uh, I suspect as we read through it, you're just finding yourself going, ouch, ooh, that's brutal. Peter writes with vivid language, and he writes with a passionate heart, because what he sees happening in his day is something that in his mind is absolutely dreadful. It is absolutely dangerous, and there's no time to beat around the bush. There's no time to to soft-pedal it. He comes at it with all of... The, the verbal power that he has to attack what, in his eyes, is a dangerous, dangerous problem. And that's the problem of false teachers. False teachers who, who rise up within Christianity and gain a, uh, sort of levels of power and prominence and attract the following of people who will listen to them and believe what they say and what they teach and follow them. And yet, in reality, they're not Christian teachers at all. They're false teachers. They're false prophets who do not serve the Lord. They serve another master, one who will ultimately destroy them and everyone who follows them. This is true in Peter's day. It's true in our day. And the reason it's such a dangerous problem is because false teachers don't wear T-shirts that say, Hey, look at me, I'm a false teacher. They don't parade around and advertise the falsehood of what they do. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They work very hard to look exactly like the real thing. They use enough Christian language to make them sound Christian. They, they'll read verses out of the Bible and they'll use the Scriptures as sort of uh, platforms to jump off into their own teaching and their own thoughts. And to the unsuspecting, you hear Christian language and you see the trappings of Christian worship and you hear verses from the Christian Bible and all of it looks very, very Christian. But at the heart, it's vile and it's evil and it destroys, it doesn't save looks like the real thing. And that's what makes it so destructive. In this text, Peter just unleashes an all-out assault on this. And as I mentioned last week when we jumped into this topic, in our culture, it's, it's very rare for anyone to 
come out with an all-out assault on anything that's false doctrine because we live in a world of tolerance and a culture of tolerance, a culture that says, hey, you just do your own thing. You believe what you want to believe and leave everybody else alone. But don't go around telling people they're wrong. Don't go around calling people false. That's intolerant. That's backwards. That's, that's, um, that's just not proper in culture these days. Well, Peter says to heck with that in any culture. I think in our culture in America today, the movement at least that's the most prominent from which much of this kind of thing springs and is perhaps the greatest danger in the American Christian culture is the movement called the Prosperity Gospel. It flows out of the charismatic Christian church. It goes by different names, the Prosperity Gospel, the Health and Wealth Teaching gospel or movement, word of faith movement. Uh, We don't have time to to kind of give a full description of this movement, but at the heart of this movement is a theology and a doctrine that says God's will for your life is to be healthy and wealthy and happy. That's the bottom line, that that's God's will for every person who believes in him. But that's it. You're to be healthy, wealthy and happy. And if you're not, there's a problem with your faith. The problem is not with God, it's with you. That's what God wants to do for all of us. And if we just believe enough, then that's what will happen. And if we just act on what we believe enough via giving our money, as they would say, sowing seeds of faith, then, we're, then God is then bound and obligated to provide for us wealth and health and happiness. There's so much more that comes along with this theology than just that, but that's the heart and message of it. Names associated with this movement are names like Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Oral Roberts, Robert Tilton, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, and the list could go on and on and on and on. And within this movement, there's sort of a a whole spectrum from the most wacky and egregious on one end to the more mild and, and sentimental on the other. I suppose you could say you go from Joel Osteen on one side to Benny Hinn on the other. And there's all sorts of stops in between. But at the heart of it all is the same false message and the same damning heresy that doesn't help anyone, it destroys all who buy into it. There is one in that movement who finds particular prominence actually right now in American culture, and it has me particularly bothered because of the apparent validity that's being given to her. It's a woman by the name of Paula White. Maybe you've heard Paula White. She's been in the news recently. She's been in the news recently because she's risen to a level of visibility because she's now seen as the leading spiritual advisor to our current president. I saw an article this week. It was entitled, The Pastors, I mean, The President's Pastor. And it was all about Paula White. Now, I haven't lived all that long. I still consider myself young. But my entire life, there's been one human being that's been sort of known as the president's pastor, regardless of who the president was. Whether they were a Democrat or a Republican, it didn't matter. If they were the president, this man was seen as the primary spiritual advisor to the president. You know who that was, right? Billy Graham. I have a picture that kind of shows this. I couldn't fit enough pictures for you to be able to see it of Billy Graham with every president that he's been seen as a spiritual advisor to. Now, we may quibble with details of Billy Graham's theology, but at the heart of this, Billy Graham is a godly man. He's a man who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and a man whose life was a testimony of faithfulness to the Lord. So when I see an article that says now we have a new pastor to the president, and it's Paula White, something inside of me wants to throw up. Because this is no longer pastor to the president. There's a new one. And all over the place where you see the president, you're seeing Paula White show up. 
Now listen, as Christians, we've talked about this many times. We have a responsibility toward our president. That's to respect and to pray for his good and his wisdom. And that should be what every one of us does regardless of who the president happens to be, whether we like him or you don't like them. And to pray for the president's good means to pray that he would get good, sound, spiritual advice from spiritual advisors. And I'm here to tell you this morning that this woman who's finding herself all around where our president is, is not a godly spiritual advisor. She flows right out of the health and wealth prosperity gospel movement. She calls herself Dr. Paula White, although she has no theological training. She has no college degree. She has no master's of divinity degree. She has no legitimate degree of Bible training anywhere. She received an honorary doctorate from a National Church of God unaccredited school, but uses that as a platform to give the appearance of learning. Paula White and her second husband, Randy, began a church called Without Walls Church down in Florida. Maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago at this point. By the way, Randy was her second husband who she was having an affair with while he was the associate pastor of the church. And she was married to her first husband. Um, Oddly enough, things worked out for them to abandon both of those families and marry one another and crank up a church called Without Walls and teach the prosperity gospel under the tutelage of people like T.D. Jakes and others. Grew a following of somewhere in the neighborhood of at its height 20,000 people who were giving money by the millions to their ministry to support her lavish lifestyle. Multi-million dollar homes all over the place, including a multi-million dollar condo in Trump Tower and other places. When the second marriage to Randy fell apart as they were pastoring the church, uh, the church began to fall apart. And when the church began to fall apart and the money stream started slowing down, Paula White exited stage left and took on a new church that happened to have about $9 million in the bank and continued her ministry right on there with her husband, who incidentally was a pretty interesting dude. He was one of the, lead, one of the original guys in the rock band Journey. You guys know Journey? Don't Stop Believing? He wrote that. It's Paula White's, Paula White's new husband. After she left the church, the church defaulted on a multi-million dollar mortgage and filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. If you go down to where Without Walls Church was now, you see a building that's destroyed and empty and a church that's devastated and thousands of people who are left in the dark, swindled by a swindler. But Paula White continues on with the same teaching and the same kind of ministry and the same kind of theology, doing the same thing she's always done to a new group of people. And these days, she's being legitimized in our culture. And as we walk our way through the rest of these characteristics of false teachers this morning, I'm going to give you some examples, if I haven't already given you enough, that you can compare to Peter's list and you decide for yourself what you think of Paula White and all the others who are in her wake with the same kind of a movement. This is not a benign movement in our culture. It's a dreadfully dangerous movement. The people who lead it are not ministers who are trained in the Scriptures. They have theology that is absolutely dreadful. Often they just make it up as they go. They have hermeneutics. If you don't know what that means, it just means methods for interpreting the Bible that are all across the board. Nonsense, to be honest with you. And they have lifestyles that really betray their whole true motivation. If anybody watches, you can tell what they're really about. And I believe that that movement, it's not the only movement, but it is a movement that is a literal jackpot for finding what Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 2. They look so much like the real thing. They say just enough that sounds right to make it seem orthodox and seem true. They work exceptionally hard to make people believe they're the real deal. But at the end of the day, they're frauds. They're pretenders who care about one person, and that's themselves. That's exactly what Peter was facing in his day. That's exactly what motivated him to write the second chapter of Second Peter. And in this, he's given us sort of a list of characteristics of false teachers. Last week, we saw just a few of them. For those of you who aren't with us, I'll just provide a brief 
review. We saw, first of all, that they are arrogant and disrespectful in chapter Uh, 2 verse 10, they're bold and willful. They don't tremble as they blaspheme. They're arrogant. They're disrespectful. They don't have any authorities that they submit to. They say bold things and they lack humility. But it's not just that they're arrogant and disrespectful. They're driven by passions and not the truth. We're told that like irrational animals, they're creatures of instinct. They're driven by their passions. They're driven by their instincts. They're not driven by reason and by truth and by doctrine. They're driven by passions and emotions and feelings and instinct. They don't teach the whole truth. They operate on the basis of feelings and emotions and appetites, but not reason. Verse 12, we find out that they're blasphemous and they're ignorant. They blaspheme, Peter says, about matters of which they're ignorant. They claim to know the truth, but in fact they don't know the truth. They boldly put stuff out there as God's truth, and they haven't a clue what they're talking about. But they say it with such authority, you would think they did. But in truth, what they say is blasphemous, and it's ignorant. Then in verse 13, we saw that they're shameless. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They, they, they openly live in ways that are rebellious against the truth of God's word. And they don't even see, seem to, to, to hide it very well. It just comes out. They're shameless, Peter says. They're open about it. Now, just a side note. In Peter's day, the issue was these false teachers were teaching that Christ is not going to ever return, that that's not a true doctrine, that Jesus isn't coming back, and at the end of time, there's going to be no accountability for how we live before him. And so, if it stands to reason that Jesus isn't coming back and there's going to be no human accountability in the end, then what is the implication of that in our life right this moment? Do whatever you want. Live however you'd like to live. Who cares? Why bother with living a moral and upright life? What's the point of that? Just do what you want. That's the kind of libertine theology these folks were teaching. And it's the same kind of thing that we hear in various quarters of our own culture today. So they're shameless. They're living in open reveling. And then we saw in verse 14, they're driven by lust. They have eyes full of adultery. Literally, eyes full of adulteresses. These men were prophets who went around and there was not a single woman that they could look at without sizing her up as a potential target for their adultery. They were driven by lust. As we mentioned last week, the history of the church is just littered with person after person after person who exalted themselves as spiritual leaders only to be exposed later as having a secret life of lust and adultery that nobody knew about until it was exposed. And that brings us to verse 14, where we pick up with our time today. Peter goes on to continue our list after driven by lust to give us a sixth characteristic. He says they have hearts trained in greed. Hearts trained in greed. That's a vivid description, isn't it? Hearts trained in greed. He goes on in verse 15 and 16 to say, Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice to restrain the prophet's madness. You say, what in the world is all that about? Verse 14, they're trained in greed. This is a word translated trained there is a word that we, from which we get the word gymnasium. It has an athletic sort of a tone to it. When you think about athletes, what do they do to become a great athlete? They train, right? I think of those Olympic gymnasts, who, uh, those little girls who did such a marvelous job in the last uh, Olympics, uh, Simone Biles and Ali something or other. Um, you know what I'm talking about. These girls, I mean, they're, they're remarkable athletes. Why are they remarkable athletes? Because when they were tiny little girls, they went off to a gym somewhere, and their whole lives have been spent doing what? Training. That's why they're magnificent at what they do. They're trained in it. They've worked hard to become what they are. And here Peter uses that same language to say that these false teachers, they're trained in greed. Like these athletes who train and work hard to become great athletes, these folks have have mastered the art and the training of greed. They're not amateurs at their craft. They've, They've worked at it. They've practiced it. They might appear to care about other people, but at the end of the day, it's greed that drives them. It's their own greed. 
And then he tells us this thing about Balaam and son of Beor, chapter 22 of Numbers, in case you have your Bible and you want to, um, to, to go there. There's this fascinating Old Testament story. I'll give you the, uh, the short version of it. The short version of it is this. The Moabites were enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. Neighboring nation, enemies of Israel, various points throughout their history. At one particular point, the Israelites were coming up out of Egypt and God was clearly blessing the Israelites and they were wiping out everybody in their way. And so the Moabites were particularly concerned because they saw the Israelites come in their way. And so they had a king by the name of Balak who was concerned that the Israelites were going to come and wipe them out. So he hears of, or knows of, in some way, shape, or form, a prophet by the name of Balaam. So Balak sends people to go chat with Balaam. And his goal is he wants to hire this prophet, and he wants to hire him for a purpose. And the purpose is that the prophet would curse Israel, put a curse on them, so that they couldn't come up and defeat them in battle. And so when you get to Numbers chapter 22 all the way through chapter 25, it's the story of these, this king sending emissaries to this prophet to try and coerce him to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. And the way this works is he keeps sending emissaries, and they keep coming to Balaam, saying, here, the king wants you to do this, and he says things that sound really spiritual. Oh, no, I can only speak what the Lord tells me to speak. But then they come back with a little more money the next time. Oh, no. I can only speak what the Lord wants me to speak. And you get the feeling as it goes along that Balaam knows exactly who he's dealing with. And he knows that the king will keep up in the ante. And that he can milk this thing. So he gives all this spiritual sounding, no, 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 I can't do that. Because he knows eventually the price will get higher. And every false prophet has his price. Right? And Balaam has his price. At the end of the day, when you get to Numbers chapter 22... Balaam starts to head out to, to, to potentially do what God had forbidden him from doing and what this king was hiring him to do. And it, the repeater talks about him being mad. Literally, the guy's mad with greed is what he is. But he's heading out on his donkey to do potentially what the Lord had forbidden him from doing. And I'll just pick up a little bit of the story in Numbers 22, verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on a donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. That's a terrifying sight. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into a field. And Balaam, what does he do? He strikes the donkey to turn her onto the road. Stupid donkey, get on the road. That's what he does. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. I mean, stupid donkey, what are you doing? Squash my foot. That's what he does. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she just laid down under Balaam. You picturing this in your mind? And Balaam's anger was kindled. He struck the donkey with his staff. I mean, get the picture here. He's riding the donkey, and the donkey sees what's going on. But Balaam is completely ignorant as to what's going on. He's so out of touch with the Lord and what the Lord is actually doing, the donkey has better perception than he does. And so the donkey's getting out of the way because it doesn't want to get itself killed. And every time she moves, she gets whacked with Balaam's staff. So finally she just lays down. And Balaam is furious at this point. He's got money down the end of that road, and this donkey is messing him up. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Now talk about a life-changing moment, right? This is not a new donkey. This is the donkey Balaam's probably had for a long time, right? We find out in the ensuing narrative. I mean, your donkey opens up her mouth. You thought the creators of Shrek just made that up, didn't you? No, they stole that from Numbers chapter 22, the talking donkey part. Can you imagine the donkey? What are you whacking me for? She says, what are you hitting me for? He says, because you made a fool out of me. Well... 
We all know that didn't take much doing. I wish I had a sword in my hand or I'd kill you. That's what he says. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it, is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. Then the angel says to him, why have you strunk your donkey these three times? <laughs> Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse. I mean, definitely a defining moment in Balaam's life, right? Well, Balaam ends up going and the Lord prevents him from pronouncing a curse. And what ends up happening is the Lord forces him to pronounce a blessing instead. So Balaam is ultimately a failure in the task that he set out to do. But the whole point of bringing this story up is Balaam is like the prototypical false prophet for hire. Or you could say prophet, a for-profit prophet. That's what he is. He's a hireling. He's a person who apparently had prophetic gifts of some sort from the Lord. But he used them as a means for his own gain. That's the kind of guy he was. That isn't the end of the story of Balaam, by the way. Balaam wasn't able to do what he sets out to accomplish that day, but he doesn't quit. Later on, he, he, he comes up with this scheme to, to, if we can't curse the Israelites and get them to stop what they're doing, then here's another plan. Let's just try and get them to intermingle with other people. And dilute the race and dilute their religion so that they no longer serve the Lord anymore. And that will serve the same purpose. And so he comes up with this scheme to seduce Israelite men via Moabite women. You can imagine how that scheme played out. And when you get to chapter 25, you find out what happens to Balaam. Balaam's struck down with a sword. So when Peter says they end up being destroyed as the price of their own destruction, it's what happens to Balaam. So Balaam's killed in chapter 25. And throughout the scriptures you hear references to Balaam. He's just like if you look up Balaam in the dictionary. If you look up false prophet for hire in the dictionary, there's Balaam's picture. You know, he's just, that's just what he's known for. And Balaam's long dead, but there's still a lot of people. In fact, the entire ministry of the Christian church is littered with those whose only reason for being in it is what they can get out of it. They rob God's people. They manipulate situations so that they always come out on top. They are trained in greed. Refer back to this article on the president's pastor. The the author of this particular article took a visit to the church that Paula White now pastors. And she had a a guest prophet there, another of her her ilk that was preaching for three days. I I should have put the picture up for you because I can't pronounce this guy's name. Prophet Aquasi, something or other, I can't say the rest of it. Um, but there's fire by his picture. That's always an interesting thing. Um, but this person who, this, uh, this reporter says, uh, White took the stage wearing high heels and a tight blue dress. And she promised her members, quote, a 24-hour turnaround in your finances. Immediately after, she introduced one of her co-pastors to collect the offerings. And attendees filed forward with pink donation envelopes. And then the guest speaker is introduced, and he comes up and begins to prophesy and to teach. He told one woman in the congregation that he foresaw that she would, quote, lift the flag of America and gold medals are waiting for you, along with a lucrative athletic endorsement contract. But he said, someone was jealous of her talent and, quote, has sent a picture of you to Guyana, to a certain voodoo priest. Of course, he could help with that situation. Right? Just make sure you get the pink envelope in. He told another churchgoer he was supernaturally preventing a fatal car accident for her. One man in a beige jacket approached the stage. Uh, The evangelist called for a church worker to bring him a pink envelope. That's bold. Quote, he said, he said, quote, The Lord told me to tell you something, to believe him for a seed of $5,000 right now. Let that seed get out of your hand. You have no questions to ask God about why. The Lord says he is delivering you from widowhood. You won't be a widower. 
This year you will not be a widower. Just release the seed. Give me $5,000 in the pink envelope. And the Lord says that if you're a sad widow, you'll get married this year. If that wasn't so sad and pathetic, it would be funny, wouldn't it? But this movement is built off of people who are trained in greed. Do you get that? To tell a poor widower, give me $5,000 for a prophecy that you'll get married. And have that man try to believe in his heart that if he gives that money, the Lord's going to deliver him from widowhood and sadness and loneliness. It's about as dark and evil as you can get. And it's being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which makes it particularly dreadful. I can't stomach any more, but I could go on and on about the kind of stuff that happens in that movement by him and others just like him. They are exactly what Peter talks about. They are trained in greed. They're trained in greed. They are for-profit prophets. Their gifts and their teaching are for sale, and they get rich on the backs of the poor. Listen, if you would look at the demographics of Without Walls Church at its height of 20,000 people in Florida, you would find that the largest demographic in the congregation were lower to middle income African American families. So why do you mention that? What difference does that make? It makes the point that these people prey on the poorest. They prey on the people who have the least to give. And they promise them what they cannot deliver, as we'll see in a few moments, in order to get out of them what little they have so that they can buy a $100 million private jet to fly around in. It's a training in greed. It's a cunning theology that says wealth equals God's blessing. And so I, as the minister, need to show you all this wealth so that you can then believe that I'm blessed by God and you can then want what I have. And I can then promise it to you for a price. Listen, whenever a spiritual leader, spiritual teacher, shows signs of an obsession with money or material possessions, little red lights need to go off in your head. Stay away from that person. Whenever they live flashy lifestyles, whenever they make extravagant purchases on a regular basis, whenever they show an obsession with their clothing and their appearance, Whenever they talk too much about giving and equate giving with blessing, get away. Get away from that person. They will destroy you. Verse 17, he says something else about these people. He says they are useless and they are fraudulent. And he has a very vivid way, Peter does, of explaining this. Look what he calls them. He says they are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. All that means, they make big promises but they never deliver. They are teachers who thrive on deception. When I read this, I immediately thought of my days as a kid going to the, to the fair. You guys remember going to the fair when you were a kid? I don't know where you're from, but where I'm from here, there's a fair that happens every year. And you go out, I used to love doing that when I was young. Now that I have to pay for it as an adult, I don't love it so much. But when somebody else was paying for it, I was good with it, right? But do you remember, I don't know what the fair was like in your town, but there was always like these booths um, where you could walk up and you could pay. And they always had these crazy pictures on the side like, you know, $5, come see the three-headed snake woman. You know what I'm talking about? Did you ever see those at the fair? And then you're a kid, you're walking by, you're like, Dad, look, give them $5, you can see the three-headed snake woman. I never saw a three-headed snake woman before. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Dad, give them 5 bucks. I want to see it. Right? And there's the guy, oh, yeah, yeah, come on in, come on in. You've you never seen anything like her before, I promise you that. And you give over your five bucks and you go in, and you're not in there very long if you have any sense, you realize what you really knew before. There's no such thing as a three-headed snake woman. It's a hoax to get your five bucks. You've been duped. What they promise, they don't deliver. It's a deception designed to get money out of your pocket and into theirs by promising you what they absolutely cannot deliver. Kind of expect that at the fair, but you don't expect that in the church. And yet it's the same thing. 
Peter says they're waterless springs. Imagine living in the Middle East in a desert climate. If there's anything that you must have to survive in a desert climate, in Peter's day particularly, but true in our day as well, you must have one essential thing to live. What is it? It's water. It's water. You must have water. You cannot underestimate the importance of water in a Middle Eastern culture. The absence of it is a matter of absolute life and death. Imagine being out in the middle of a desert, and you're desperately thirsty, and you see off in the distance the appearance of a spring. And you think, there's a spring, cool, refreshing water. I am parched. I am dying of thirst. And you race to that spring, and you run with all your might, and you get there, and you go to dive into that refreshing water, and what do you find? Sand. It's a waterless spring. It's a spring that looks like it's going to provide you a refreshing drink. Quench your thirst. And you get there and it cannot deliver what it promises. And you leave with nothing but disappointment. And you leave just as thirsty as when you arrived. It's waterless. And a waterless spring is a useless spring. He said they're mist driven by, the, by a storm. What is that all about? Again, you needed rain. It was critical to your life to, to water the crops so that you would have food. And so in a Middle Eastern culture, you're constantly looking at the horizon. It wasn't like you could just pull up the weather channel on your iPad and see when the next storm was coming, right? You had to watch the horizon, and you would see these, these clouds that looked like a mist coming along the horizon. And as you saw those coming, you'd begin to get your hopes up because you'd begin to think, what? It's going to rain. It's going to rain. Rain is coming. And those misty clouds would come in, and the storm would, winds would just blow them away, and they would never drop one drip of rain. They promise so much on the horizon, but when they blow away, they deliver nothing. They deliver nothing. They are useless, and they are unproductive, and they are fraudulent. And that's what Peter says false teachers are. They make bold promises. Oh, they make bold promises. They can quench your thirst. They can, they, can, they can satisfy your spiritual hunger. They promise big, but they don't deliver. The thirsty soul goes to them and goes away thirsty. The hungry soul goes to them and finds no satisfaction and walks away just as hungry as when they came. Oh, the false teachers dazzle. They amaze. They impress. But they can't deliver. So at the end of the day, they're fraudulent and they're useless, Peter says. And then he says they prey on the most vulnerable. They prey on the most vulnerable. Look at verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. Verse 18. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. It's kind of a tricky sort of grammar in that last sentence, but let me just break it down this way for you. What Peter is saying is that false teachers prey on the people who are the most vulnerable. They don't prey on mature, established, rooted in this text of Scripture Christians. They don't prey on those kinds of people. Why? Because those kinds of people who are taught the Word of God and who know it can look at what they're doing and see through the facade. So they prey on those who are unsteady souls or unstable souls. Those who are not yet stabilized in their faith. Those who are untaught in the Scriptures. Those who have not yet honed their skills of discernment. Those who are are, are easily seduced. Those people who are desperate for help. That's who they pray for. That's who they pray on. Because after all, when you're desperate, you'll do anything. You'll do almost anything. If you think there's some potential, you'll get help. It's like the man sitting in Las Vegas who's up to his ears in debt, who puts his last, his last quarter in the slot machine, hoping beyond hope that the next pull is going to deliver him from all of his troubles, only to find that the next pull leaves him a quarter emptier than he was before. Unsteady souls. That's who they prey on. People who are desperate. People who are not entrenched in the Word of God. The word here, entice, is a fishing term. To lure and to bait. It's the issue. It's like the picture of a fisherman. What does a fisherman do? He puts something on the end of a hook. 
And the goal of what you put on the end of the hook is to make it look like what? Like food. Like some good food for a fish. I mean, it's an intentional fraud, right? You put it on there and you want it to look as real as possible so that when you throw it out in the water and you dangle it, here, fishy, fishy, right in front of a little fishy, little fishy swims along and says, man, that looks like good food. That looks like a minnow. And the bass swims up and chomps down only to realize very quickly upon chomping, it ain't real. It was a lure. It was bait. It was meant to look real just to attract me so that I could bite it so that when I bite it, hooks me and I'm done. They entice. They lure. They bait unstable people, unsteady people, desperate people with what looks like the real thing. But when those people bite down, they find out that not only is it not the real thing, but they're being harmed in the process. That's who he's talking about here. He says those barely escaping from those who live in anger. Commentators are sort of divided on that. I think the issue here is they're dealing with people who are making initial sorts of professions of faith that turn out in the end to be false. But they're people who are new to Christianity, new to the faith, or at the very best, or at the very least, untrained. And so they're unsteady. And they're sitting ducks. They prey on the most vulnerable, the most desperate, the most impressionable, and they dangle bait in front of them to lure them. That's how you build a multi-gazillion dollar ministry with fancy cars and multiple penthouses and private jets while you've got people in your church starving. It's a pretty comprehensive list of characteristics of false prophets, isn't it? Go back to the slide, the the, uh, first of that list for me, if you would, Josh. Arrogant, disrespectful, driven by passion, not truth, blasphemous, ignorant, shameless, driven by lust, driven by greed, fraudulent, useless, preying on the most vulnerable. Not every false teacher exhibits every one of those characteristics, but all false teachers exhibit some of them. And some of them exhibit all of them. We need to know those things. You need to get that in your head so that when you're watching and you're listening, you're able to tell the difference between what's true and what's real and what's a lie. So you can tell your difference between the man of God who's actually got your soul and its care in his heart and the man who just wants to take money out of your back pocket to pad his own lifestyle. That's what false teachers do, according to Peter. He tells us finally that they're in a condition that can be very easily summarized. If we go back over our text, he gives us several descriptions of their condition. Back in verse 12, he says, they are like animals born to be what? Caught and destroyed. Verse 14, he calls them accursed children. They're not blessed children, although they like to claim the blessing of the Lord. What are they? They're cursed. They're not under the blessing of God. Despite what they say about all of their flamboyant lifestyle and materialistic living as an example of God's blessing, they're not blessed. They are indeed cursed. Go on down to verse 17. Peter uses even more vivid imagery. In verse 17 he says this, Blackest darkness is reserved for them. That's a description of hell. They are accursed, and they have reservations already made in hell. That's bold language that Peter uses. That's not tiptoeing around the tulips. They may look like the real deal. They may have the trappings of Christianity. They may pretend to be looking out for your spiritual interests. They may proclaim to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it, underneath it all, they are cursed, they are born to be destroyed, and they have reservations made already in hell. And if you follow them, that's where they'll take you. That's Peter's point. At the end of this, he says they're practically unredeemable. That's a sad shape to be in. 
He talks about them as being those who have at some point in their life, in some sort of a visible fashion, have appeared to have escaped from the defilements of the world, is the way he says it. But what he means is these are people who have at some point walked away from an old sinful lifestyle and cleaned up their act and attached themselves to Christianity. And from the outside, they looked like the real thing. And maybe it looked like they were truly at one point pursuing the Lord, but they have at some point departed, Peter says, from the way. At some point, they were really reading their Bibles. At some point, they were really under true teaching. At some point, like in the parable of the soils, for a season, they looked like the real thing. But he says they turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them, and they got entangled again in their old defilements. Then he says something really interesting. He says it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back. It says, literally Peter says, it would have been better for them to never have known anything about the Lord Jesus Christ than it was or would be for them to follow him for a season and turn away into what they've turned into. And then he uses other vivid imagery. They're like pigs and dogs. And listen, I know you have dog lovers and I made you mad last week. I'm not going to make you mad again this week. But in their days... In Peter's day, you didn't have cute household. You didn't, you didn't dress up your chihuahua and carry him in your purse. You didn't dress him up in cute. Dogs were seen like pigs. They were seen as dirty animals that fed off of garbage and trash and were diseased. And they were not cute house pets. And their, the example of their sort of way of living Peter uses is they, they puke and they go back and eat it. It's pretty disgusting. Has your dog ever done that? Even your pet... You know, Poofy in the backyard. You're like, what are you doing, Poofy? Why are you eating your, your vomit? That's disgusting. Don't do that and come lick my face. They, that's what dogs do, right? Even our refined dogs do that, right? Spoiled dogs like mine. And the pig, you can take the pig out of the, out of the farm and you can wash them and clean them up and make them all nice and pretty. But what is that pig going to do as soon as she gets a chance? going to find the nearest mud hole and go flop in it again. It's vivid imagery. He says, what these false teachers are like? They're like pigs. They clean up for a little while, but at some point or other, they see a good mud pit and they go slop right back in it. The cleaning up was all just a deception. It was all just an illusion. They go back to what their true nature really is, eventually. And they reveal to everyone who's watching what they really are. It's vivid imagery. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we make sense of any of this? Let me just give you a couple of just points of application, and we'll call this quits. Let me just say this first. We have to train ourselves to be discerning in who we listen to as spiritual authorities. That's an application for us. We must train ourselves to be discerning in who we listen to as spiritual authorities. Listen carefully to what they say. Compare everything they say to the Scriptures. And when it does not line up, you jettison them and never listen to another thing they have to say. Don't sit back and say, well, they say some good things. There's some wacky, but I like the good stuff. I can just listen to the good stuff and weed out the wacky. No, you can't. The wacky will eat away at your soul. If what a teacher says to you does not line up with the text of Scripture, then you dump that teacher and listen to nothing they have to say. Is what they teach consistent with historic, orthodox Christian truth? Is it a novel? Is it targeted at the emotion? Is it encouraging holiness or is it encouraging a loose, flippant attitude towards sin? Is it feeding off of my natural lusts or is it helping me to subdue them? Those are the kinds of questions you ask when you're evaluating what a teacher says. Listen to what they say. And then watch their lifestyle carefully, what they do. Are they marked by humility and gentleness and self-control and contentment? Or are they marked by greed and sexuality and love of power and arrogance and ignorance? You see the difference in how they behave. Watch their lives. You can tell who's the winner and who's the loser around them. It's like going to Las Vegas. And you, you're amazed by all the marvelous resorts that are all around you. And you have to stop and ask yourself the question, who's the winner and who's the loser in this city? 
The winner is whoever owns those marvelous places because they have enough money to build such fabulous things. The loser is who? The one who sits and feeds them the money. All the while promising you that you're going to be a winner. They're the winners. And you're the loser. Watch what they say. Watch what they do. I mentioned J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop, a century ago. He gives a couple of pieces of advice that I just want to quote because he says them way better than I could. He says, Beware of trusting teachers of religion. Beware of supposing that a teacher of religion is to be trusted because he holds some unsound views. Yet, he teaches a great deal of truth. Such a teacher, Ryle says, is precisely the man to do you harm. Poison is almost always dangerous most when it's given in small doses and mixed with wholesome food. Brilliant, isn't it? He says, don't be enamored with false teachers because they're, because they're zealous. He says, there's an undeniable zeal in some of the teachers of error. Their earnestness makes you think they must be right. There's a great appearance of learning and theological knowledge. Many fancy such clever and intellectual men must surely be safe guides. There's a silly readiness in every direction to believe everybody who talks cleverly, lovingly, and earnestly. And he says there's a widespread gullibility among professing Christians. Every heretic who tells a story plausibly is sure to be believed. (laughs) He's right. It's true in his day. It's true in ours. And I love this one. He says, don't make a pope out of your minister. And I tell you that. In truth, he says, your minister may be a man of God indeed and worthy of all honor for his preaching and practice. But don't make a pope of him. Don't place his word side by side with the word of God. Don't spoil him with flattery. Don't let him suppose he can make no mistakes. Do not lean your whole weight on his opinion or you may find to the cost of your own soul that he can err. That's good advice. It's very good advice. He says, don't be satisfied with a religion built upon a man. Don't be content with saying, I have hope because my own ministers told me such and such things. Seek to be able to say, I have hope because I find it written in the Word of God. He says, finally, esteem your pastor lightly. Excuse me, highly. Don't get that wrong. Esteem your pastor highly in love for his work's sake. But never forget that infallibility is not to be found in godly ministers, but in the Bible. And then he finally says, arm yourselves with the knowledge of the Scriptures. Lastly, an ignorant laity will always be the bane of the church. But a Bible-reading laity may save the church from ruin. Let us read the Bible regularly, daily, and with fervent prayer, and become familiar with its contents. Let us receive nothing, believe nothing, follow nothing which is not in the Bible, nor can be proved by the Bible. That's wonderful advice in light of what Peter has told us about what's all around us. We would do well to heed it. If you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All of this may just sound like a bunch of odd stuff to you. You don't know what it means to be a Christian. It simply means not following some pastor or some preacher or some TV personality. Being a Christian is not even, in fact, placing your faith in any person except for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the very Son of God, who came to this earth to give His life on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, for your rebellion against God. And the truth of the Scripture is very clear. To be a Christian, you don't give your money in a pink envelope to some evangelist. You get on your knees before the Lord Jesus. You confess your sin. You commit in your heart, Lord Jesus, I'm going to do the best of my ability, and with your help, I'm going to turn from this lifestyle that I'm living, and I'm going to put my trust in you. I could never save my own soul. It's not possible, but you alone can do that for me. And so I entrust my life to you. Do with it as you will. Become for me my Lord and Savior. Transform me into your image. Make me what I can't possibly make myself that I might be able to live a life that honors you. There's no magic formula. There's no secret prayer. There's no magic handshake. It's a matter of an honest human heart crying out to the Lord in his own words or her own words.
such things. And the good news of the gospel is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, truly saved. Let's pray. Father, we we hear Peter's words and they are sickening to consider when we look around our own culture and we think about what's around us and how real the danger that Peter exposes is in our very midst right now in our day. It's frightening. How many thousands upon thousands of people are being duped this very morning by people just like the ones Peter describes. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our nation. We pray for our president this morning, Lord, that you would draw around him true spiritual advisors, people who truly know you and love you and who who truly understand the gospel and can teach and advise him with wisdom and truth. I pray that you would shut his ears to the words of the false teachers that are around him now that they would have absolutely no influence upon his mind. We pray for the good of our president and our nation. We pray for his blessing and for his salvation. We pray for ourselves as well, Lord, because we live busy lives and it's very easy for us to fall into it's confusion about what we hear around us. We see teachers, we see preachers all over the place of all sorts and shapes and Sizes and denominations coming from all sorts of directions saying all sorts of things. And it's hard, Lord, to know what's real and what's not. Lord, help us to see these characteristics Peter has taught us. Give us a discerning heart with the help of your Spirit. Don't let us fall prey to those who would seek to destroy us for their own gain. Give us a boldness about us, Lord, to speak the truth to those we know and love who are following after these charlatans. Because these are no light matters. And above all, help us to guard our own hearts. Help us to evaluate regularly where we stand with you. That we might know we're walking with you and walking in truth. Because your spirit lives in us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.